We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 today. If you'd like to turn there, I'll be reading verses 7 through 14. This is an introduction to the series I mentioned, Ryu. It's an important, I think, introduction for us to get our bearings. Uh, and I think an important series. So you want to invite friends to come and be part of this. This is uh, Philippians 3, 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you about George Soros. <coughs> Excuse me. He's a Hungarian-born American businessman. Um, he's an investor, a philanthropist. He's probably best known for his investments in the foreign currency exchange, known as Forex. On a single day back in 1992, Soros turned a billion-dollar profit, on a single day, a billion-dollar profit by short-selling British pounds. Do you know that people trade currencies? Currency markets always in flux, and people are always guessing which is going up and which is going down. Most traders buy and sell major currencies like euros or Swiss francs or Indian rupees or Chinese yen. But imagine an investor who hopes to duplicate Soros's triumph, but instead of trading in pounds, he decides to buy and then short sell emirate dirhams, the currency of the United Arab Emirates. So right now they're trading at about four dirhams to the dollar. But speculators assure him that in a short time they'll be trading at three times that amount. Maybe even the, the value of the dirham will quadruple against the dollar in the next six months. So this fellow doesn't have George Soros' $24 billion to invest, but he takes everything he has, he liquidates all his assets, he sells off his bonds, he even takes a second mortgage on his house in order to buy $300,000 in dirhams. And then he watches the forex like a hawk. He's even sneaking peeks at his computer while he's at work all the time at what the current bank rate is. And then it happens. He checks the exchange rate one morning as his coffee's brewing, and he learns that the Durham has fallen 300% overnight. By the end of the day, it's down 1,000%. And worse yet, by the following day, the State Department has broken off ties with the UAE over uh, terrorism concerns. Okay, so you have the picture. All the major currency exchanges have pulled the Durham off of its markets. It's no longer traded internationally. It's not a negotiable currency outside the UAE. 
Our would-be currency exchange magnet has over a million durhams in his name in some account, often some bank, and they mean absolutely nothing. Monopoly money would be just as valuable. All right, now let's turn the story around. Imagine a second person, this one living in the Emirates, who decides to liquidate all his assets and buy 1.2 million dirhams worth of American dollars. His friends tell him, don't do that. that that's not smart. A, a dirham in the hand is worth 10 American dollars on the exchange, but he won't be dissuaded. Now, when the durham crashes to the ground, he has 300,000 American dollars, currency that will trade anywhere in the world. His friends say, why worry about what's going on in the outside world? Just save your durhams. But he hopes to go to the outside world someday. He hopes to live there. How would you feel if you were the first man? You'd feel lost, helpless, foolish. I suspect that's just how men and women will someday feel when they stand before God and realize they've invested their entire life in things that don't mean anything, things that just don't count. How would you feel if you were the second man? Pretty good, I should think. You would feel like those people who will one day stand before God and be able to say, I invested my life in Jesus Christ. All of us trade our lives. That is our energy, our thoughts, our time for some kind of currency that we think will satisfy us here and now or place us in good standing on the day we find ourselves before God. Some people's investment strategy is very short term. They invest in the three Ps, pleasure, possessions, positions. The things they hope will bring them satisfaction and standing in this life. Other people have a long-term strategy. They're thinking about heaven in the future. They're willing to sacrifice the short-term, short-term return for a long-term security with God. But even those people may find they're investing in a currency that won't hold its value. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> See, when Paul was a fairly young man, he had a life-changing insight, which is how all lasting change begins. Every lasting change begins with an insight. You want to change? You want to become the person you were always meant to be, that you're compelled to be, that you long to be? That change will only occur as three things take place in your life. You will have a powerful insight. It will be a new perspective for you. It'll be a revelation, a new understanding. That insight will reveal to you things you didn't know about yourself, about God, about how life really works. And as that insight unfolds, as you begin to understand what all that entails, it will call you to a decision. That decision is the second thing that must happen. If you do not make a decision based on this new insight, Nothing changes. Evangelists and church leaders often talk about the decisions for Christ that were made. You used to be evangelists promoted themselves that way. We had 400 decisions for Christ made at the past crusade. But what they really are talking about are 400 insights about Christ that people had. 
They didn't make decisions for Christ. They only had realizations about him. They think they've changed because they've had an insight. See, insights can be very powerful experiences. And in fact, they can cause our adrenaline to run. I mean, it can feel so important. But people need to go on and make a decision. It's our choices, not our realizations, that define who we are. It's our choices, not our realizations, that define us. The third component of lasting change is implementation. A person has an insight. On the basis of that insight, he or she makes a decision and then goes on to implement that decision into every day, and I mean every day life. We see those things happening in Paul's life as he describes it in that passage I just read to you, Philippians 3. First, he had an insight. It was a revelation to him, and he knew it was important. It was huge. It shook him when he realized that life wasn't what he thought it was. He discovered that the things he had been investing in and trading on, his heritage, his upbringing, his education, his religion, were not negotiable currency. What a shock that must have been to him. Because he was heavily invested in these things. Look at verses 5 and 6 where he lists his investment instruments. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the churches for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That's quite a portfolio. One that his friends, maybe even his enemies, might envy. Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day, or literally as to circumcision, an eighth day or The Torah directed people to circumcise their baby boys when they were eight days old, and that's just what Paul's parents did for him. It was an investment his parents made for him, and he felt that it was paying dividends. But more than that, unlike proselytes to the faith, and in Philippians, Paul is encountering people with whom he's having disagreements, many of whom were proselytes to the faith. The blood of the patriarchs ran in Paul's veins. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which had a special pride of place, The father of that tribe was Israel's youngest son, one of his favorites. From that tribal group came Israel's first king. Paul even shared his name. When Israel went to war, it was the tribe of Benjamin that led them into battle. Benjamin was one of only two tribes that remained faithful to the crown during the Great Rebellion. Coming from Benjamin was something of which Paul was proud. It was not something that most Jews could claim. He says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That either means that both of his parents were Jewish or that, unlike many expatriate Jews at the time, both his parents spoke the ancient Hebrew language. See, the Bible, the Old Testament, had to be translated into Aramaic or Greek for most of Paul's contemporaries to understand it. But not Paul. He thought of his language skills as currency. As regarded the Torah, the Jewish law, the Paul's opponents insisted Gentile converts follow, all Paul has to say is, I'm a Pharisee. Didn't take anything else. Everyone knew that as regards the observance of Torah, the Pharisees were the strictest sect in Judaism. As for zeal, no one had a thing on Paul. He was the top of the class. As for legalistic righteousness, it's a phrase that means something like the in-Torah righteousness. As for that, he was blameless. 
He tried to keep all the commands laid down in the law, and when he failed to keep one, he made the necessary sacrifices. He followed the rabbinic code. That means, among other things, he kept 600 plus Sabbath day regulations. He attended all the feasts. He kept the festivals. He prayed at the prescribed times for prayer. He fasted. In his own mind, he'd accumulated a mountain of currency that he could use in relating to people and relating to God. And then came the insight, the realization that shook his world. That currency was not negotiable. It wasn't exchanged on God's market. It gave him status in his little group of Pharisees. It impressed a few religious people. But in the real world, that is in God's world, it didn't mean a thing. He had spent everything. He had spent his life trying to amass this currency. And now he knew, suddenly, it was worthless. He could have ignored that realization He could have gone on living as he'd always lived, trading his currency in his little group like boys trading baseball cards. Or he could follow this God-given insight wherever it might lead. That had to be scary. He had a decision to make. Would he act on the truth that had been revealed to him? Or would he just go back to normal life? He would act on that truth, and he did. If he had not, his life would not have changed, and he would not have become the person he was meant to be. He wouldn't have changed the world. And you and I would never have heard of him. But he chose, he decided, he acted on this God-given insight. He walked away from that mountain of currency that he built up, and he never looked back. The only reason he brings it up now is that he sees people making the same mistake he once made, and he wants to save them from it. So he tells them, this is verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. You think that was a tough decision to make? Sure it was. I've lost all things, he says. He'd walked away from it all, everything he'd worked for. He had to know, for one thing, how disappointed his dad would be in him. He knew his friends wouldn't understand him. But some of them wouldn't have anything to do with him from now on. He would have nothing to show for his heritage, his upbringing, his education, his religion. He was starting all over. But the insight that all the things he had been investing in were non-negotiable currency with God, that was only half of what he'd seen. The other half was this. He could invest his life in Jesus and reap amazing rewards. Heritage, no. Education, no. Upbringing, no. Religion, no. Jesus, yes. Jesus, he realized, is the one great investment opportunity for any life. He realized it, and what's more, he made a decision. The moment of decision, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in your own life, but the moment of decision is hard to pin down. 
Somehow, and we don't usually know how, the revelation to us becomes a resolution in us. The insight becomes intention. The deepest part of us says yes to God and no to everything that would keep us from him. Apart from decision, there is no real change. There's only deterioration. As people get older, they sometimes secretly congratulate themselves that they no longer act like they once did. They don't lust all the time. They don't get angry and fight like they did when they were young. They think they've changed. Truth is, they've only aged. Real change, change into Christ-likeness, depends on decision. Please understand that. Decision is so important. C.S. Lewis said, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. Change, the kind we all want, depends on decision, not just realization. Mark Batterson explains it this way. The way you overcome spiritual inertia and produce spiritual momentum is by making tough decisions. And the tougher the decision, the more potential it will produce, the more potential for change. So let me ask you, have your insights into God's word, into your own life, led you to decisions? If not, regardless of how brilliant your insights are, you're in danger of becoming a mere listener of the word, one who's been deceived by his own insights into thinking that he's arrived when he hasn't even left home. Paul had this great insight into himself and into God and into how the world works. It was a revelation brought home to him by the Holy Spirit. It's a shocking realization that he was investing his life in currency that will not spend, currency that isn't worth a cent in heaven. He realized he was wasting his life, years and years of it. Instead of running from that insight, he thought it through. He uses the word consider three times in this short passage. He reasoned it out. He thought it through. He paid attention to this challenging insight, and that took courage, and he worked out its implications. But he didn't stop there. He acted on what he'd seen. He made a decision. He chose to give up the things that he once pursued. He would lose all things. Those are his words. He'd walk away from a life that was still winning kudos so that he could gain Christ. He would know Christ. He would be Christ's man, no matter what it took, even if it meant suffering. Paul had an insight. The life investments he'd been making and making more successfully than anyone else were not negotiable currency with God. Instead of running from that insight like many of us would have done, he considered it, he weighed it, and then he made a decision. The action of the will, the decisions we make, are absolutely critical. It's hard to overstate the importance of the decisions we make in the process of change. We won't change if we don't intend to, and we won't really intend to until we decide to. It's our decisions that direct us into our future selves and make us who we'll be. But people don't run on willpower alone. That's not how we were designed. A decision is sort of like H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. It has to put clothes on in order to be seen. 
The decisions we make have to be dressed in actions, even better, in habits, before they can show up in our lives. Decision will die of loneliness if it remains unaccompanied by deeds. We must dress our decision in action and then take it out on the town. They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but so is the road to nowhere. The dead end alley that leaves us right where we started. Insight, no matter how true, no matter how profound, will not lead to change by itself. Yes, the truth will set you free. It'll open the prison door, but you still must get up and walk out that door. Even insight plus decision will not lead to lasting change until you factor in action. But insight plus decision plus implementation equals transformation. The apostle had an insight. He made a decision, and then he implemented that decision into action. He says, verse 12, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Verses 13 and 14, one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, he adds, only let us live up to what we've already attained. Or we might say, only let's make sure we line up with our insights. If people don't continue to invest themselves, back to my original analogy, in the new life that they've seen in Christ, they will slowly turn back to their old investment strategy. It happens again and again. It's what they know. It's what other people respect. They still get a sense of lift from it. So they go back to buying shares of religion or of respect or of pleasure or comfort or escape, whatever. And for a while, it seems like it's working. In the investment world, that's called a dead cat bounce. Even a dead cat will bounce if it falls far enough. And when it bounces, you think it's alive, but it's not. Paul's initial insight about the worthlessness of his life's investment had happened years earlier, decades earlier. But he hadn't returned to that old investment strategy. After all this time, he had not changed his mind. He was still investing his life, his time, his thought, his energy in Christ. And so you can be sure that even at this point, he was still changing, still being transformed, still becoming more than he'd ever been before. Now, in the light of all of this, I think there are four questions to ask. The first leads to the second, the second to the third, the third to the fourth. The first question is this. Do you want to change? Some of us here probably don't, quite frankly. Do you want to become something different, something more? If your answer is no, well, then you can stop right there. If you don't desire change, if you only see the need for the things around you to change, but not the things in you, you're going to find the Christian life a very hard go. If you do want to change, go on to question two. Have you had some insight into yourself, into God's ways, or into how the world works? I think most of us have. I think most people have. And it's not something we generate on our own. It's not dependent upon our intelligence, but on God's kindness. He's the one who grants us insight into his truth. 
Otherwise, we'll never see it. If you've not had such an insight, or you did, but you didn't do anything with it, and you can no longer remember what it was, you just know there was a time when I saw things differently. Talk to God about it. Ask him to show you the truth about him, about you, and about life in this world. If you have had such an insight, maybe hundreds of them, move on to the next question. Has your insight moved you to make any decisions? Insight without decision is a dead end straight. There's light on one end, but it's pitch black at the other. If you've not made a decision, oh, I've had all these insights, but I've not made a decision, revisit the insight. Ask God to bring it back to you so that you can do something with it. That's why he gave it to you. If you have made a decision based on that insight, move to the final question. Have you implemented your decision into life? Are you acting on the truth you've seen? What are you doing? How are you implementing it? If you can't point to anything, then make a decision now and start acting on it before the day is through. Don't let another day go by where you're not doing anything with the revelation that's come from God. See, there is a different you in your future. Let me say that again. There is a different you in your future. That's a given. That different you may be a better you. A transformed, happier, more loving, more grateful you. Or it may be a worse you. A deteriorated, increasingly self-centered you. Whether that different you is a better you, a Christ-like you, depends on insight, decision, implementation. Now maybe you're thinking, yeah, but I'm not really religious. I haven't even had this insight or revelation you're talking about. So how can I change if God doesn't give me insight into the truth? The answer, I think, lies along these lines. God gives truth. He gives those insights to the people who are willing to do something with them. Okay? Maybe that's your first insight. If you're willing to act on the truth, you'll know the truth. You can depend on it. If anyone chooses to do God's will, Jesus said, and that could be translated literally, if anyone wills to do his will. So there's a decision there. If anyone wills to do his will, he will know whether the teaching comes from God. So you can start by deciding that you will do what God wants you to do when you know what that is. You say, okay, I will do what God wants me to do when I know what that is. It's that simple. Tell him your decision. And then get ready. All right, let's pray. God, I ask you in the name of your good son, our master and savior, to use this in the next few weeks to change us into better, more Christ-like, more loving, joyful people, the people you always have intended us to be. More like Christ and yet more ourselves.
or on our own, we'll just waste our insights. Something more precious than gold and we'll let them lie unused. So don't let us do this on our own. Come and help us by your grace through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.